So, but we are going through Leviticus. I, that's not a lie. That is true. We are going through Leviticus. Um, I realize that for some of you guys, if you've never read the Old Testament, um, you know, it kind of dawned on me in the last few weeks, it probably is a little hard to follow with what we're talking about. Um, I, I understand that it's difficult. Just remember that the big movements of the scripture leading from the Old Testament and New Testament is that God created, mankind fell, that God made a promise that he was going to restore that which was lost. And we're in this section where we see that promise unfolding because that promise was going to happen through, a, particularly through a people called the Israelites or the Jews, and then through a particular family. And so we see in Leviticus the formation of a new country, a new nation, in fulfillment of God's um, promises in this nation of Israel. And God is their king. And so the, the first five books of the Bible called the Torah or the Pentateuch, or also called the first five books of the Bible, um, are explaining this whole backstory. And so Leviticus is explaining how a holy king, which is God, God is their king, how does a holy king tolerate a sinful people? How do they live in the same space? And that's what I said before during worship, that these sacrifices, we tend to think, oh, sacrifice is about forgiveness. And that is a factor, an aspect of forgiveness, of sacrifice. But these sacrifices are really about kind of cleansing a dirty space with blood. I know, super gross. So that God can tolerate staying, you know. God is holy. And sin is like throwing a bunch of forks in a microwave and turning it on, okay? It just it does not work, all right? And so God is, this is how God and his people are going to interact. So that's kind of where we're at in Leviticus. We're actually, today we're going to be doing a real quick overview of chapters 6 through 9. And the reason for that is because the first five chapters were all about these five offerings. So the first three offerings were kind of these Thanksgiving offerings. It was about me worshiping God. I come and I have a free will offering and I have a grain offering and all these types of things. And then the last two were about unintentional sins. Not intentional sins, but unintentional sins. In other words, when you do something and then the next day um, the God pricks your con conscience and you say, oh, I, I did that. I, oh, I, they probably think I'm a narcissist, and then, yeah, and, then you, and then you'd have to give this offering. And so um, those were the first five chapters. These next chapters, oh, those were about how the worshipers do those offerings. These chapters are about how the priest executes those offerings. So it would be very redundant if we, if we went through it again, okay? But I do want to pull out a theme that I want you guys to see here. And that theme is about worship. That theme is about worship. So what is worship? You know, um, most people, and you do this all the time, I do it too, um, and then you realize our kids do it because we do it. When we use the term worship, what do we mean? You see, most people wrongly believe that worship is like the musical part of Sunday. That's what most people believe. And so they say, well, worship is about to start. I mean, even like if you, if we we're in a, a big fancy church with 10,000 people and you'd have the ushers and they'd be like, worship is about to begin. Find your seat now, right? So there's this idea that we compartmentalize worship as this is the worship service. We're currently worshiping. Maybe we just finished worship, but that's really not biblically accurate. And so when we say things like, well, let's start worshiping or I go to church to worship, those aren't actually actual um, accurate statements. 
Now, we say them all the time because we live in a church culture. And what I mean by that is that we have a lot of Christian influence in our society. And so even if you didn't grow up as a follower of Jesus, you knew what a church was. You knew people went to these churches to worship God. And so because we have that framework, these things kind of embed themselves in our own cultural understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so I'm not trying to nitpick, um, but when we say these things, like, well, you know, I go to church to worship, when we say these things, we're actually really propagating a false understanding of what it means to worship God. Okay, so what does it mean to worship God? Well, in the first chapter of the Bible, we see written that it says man was created in the image of God or as the image of God. Depending on your translation, it's going to say one of those two things. Either man was created in the image of God as his reflection or as the image of God as an extension of his reign. Right? Both are accurate for different reasons. What I want you to realize is that if we are made in the image of God, then it's crucial to know who God is. And this is the study of systematic theology or theology proper, by the way. And see, God, the Christian God that we believe, is not three people, but he is a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, equal persons within this triune being. And within the Trinity, God is continually worshiping within his triunity. What I mean by that is that the Father loves the Son. Doug's looking at me like I'm a heretic. The Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father, the Holy Spirit loves the Son, right? There's this continual outpouring of love and affection and worship within the Trinity. So in other words, God didn't create mankind and giraffes because he was like, I just feel unloved. That wasn't God's motivation for creating um, anything. That God within himself, within his triunity, there is this circuitous nature of worship and fellowship, Okay, so there's a really these two aspects of worship and fellowship, God enjoying himself in his triunity and God fellowshipping with himself in his triunity. And you say, well, that sounds really strange. I understand that it sounds strange and a little difficult to understand because it's the Trinity, but realize that you are made, you are made in the image of a triune God. That God is worshiping himself all the time. And you may say, well, that sounds really conceited. And if I said it about myself or you said it about yourself, it would be conceited. But it's not conceited when the one being in all reality at, who actually is worthy of worship is the one who's receiving the worship. Okay? And so God is worshiping himself within his triunity as the creator, the sustainer, the one worthy of all worship. Now, we are made as his image, in his likeness, and so we too realize this. What does that mean? It means we too are continuously outpouring worship. Okay? So in other words, you weren't created to worship. You were created worshiping. Because God, as a triune God, is continually worshiping, and you, made in his image, are continually outpouring worship. Now, that doesn't mean that we're always singing, but there is a sense in which there's an essence of worship that is constantly exuding from us as, as beings made in the image of God. So what is worship? Harold Best described worship in his book, Unceasing Worship. He described it as worship is the continuous outpouring 
of all that I am in all that I do and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. So let me just explain this a little bit more. Adam and Eve walked in untarnished worship, but when they rebelled against their king and listened to the serpent, what happened is they redirected their worship, okay? And so when they're walking with God, they're worshiping God. That doesn't mean that they're always just bowing down. They're worshiping God as they obey him in, in the role that he had given them as stewards in creation. But when God when, when Satan tempts them, that beam of worship that is coming from them essentially is turned from worshiping God and now is listening to Satan. And so when they rebel against God, they're actually in that moment, they were worshiping Satan or they were worshiping themselves. So Cain, who's the first murderer in the Bible, Cain was still worshiping when he killed his brother. But what was he worshiping? He was worshiping himself. He was worshiping something that he wanted. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he was worshiping when he made a giant image in his likeness and said, everyone must bow down to it. Who was he worshiping? He was worshiping himself. The pagan nations in the ancient Near East, they worshiped gods like Baal and Ashtaroth and Marduk and others, right? They were still worshiping. The question isn't whether or not you are worshiping. The question is, what are you worshiping right now in this moment? See, much of the choosing of Israel to be God's special nation is actually about restoring worship to its proper place. That's what much of the new covenant is about. And I hope that that becomes more apparent as we continue to cite Leviticus. You see... The new covenant, God's redemption of people, is about God redeeming worship to be directed at himself instead of directed at other things. Because, and, But then there's this other factor, that God doesn't just want us to worship him. God wants us to worship him the way he wants to be worshipped. You see, because other nations sacrificed babies to worship their gods in the ancient Near East, and God doesn't want that. And so there's a sense in the Old Testament where two things are going on. One, God is requiring worship. And then two, God is expressing how worship has to happen. And we see these two ideas in, in the theology of worship. It plays out in Leviticus, but it actually stretches into the entirety of Scripture. And these, these two guide rails, so to say, of worshiping in the spirit and worshiping in the truth. That God wants to be worshipped, but he also has to be worshipped in a true way. And so these next four chapters in Leviticus, this is exactly what they're about. These are about worshipping God in spirit and truth. It's about worshipping the right God in the right way. That's what these chapters are about. And so I'm just going to read a couple examples from these chapters so you can kind of get a feel for what I'm talking about. Okay? Leviticus chapter 6, beginning in verse 8. Well, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Command Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the law of the burnt offering. The burnt offering shall be on the hearth of the altar all night until the morning. So now we're going back to the burnt offering, which was chapter 1, but they're explaining what the priests have to do. And the fire of the altar shall be kept burning on it. In other words, it can't go out. And the priest shall put on his linen garment and put his linen undergarment on his body, and he shall take up the ashes to which the fire has been reduced 
has reduced the burnt offering on the altar and put them beside the altar. And he shall take off his garments and put on other garments and carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. The fire on the altar shall be kept burning on it. It shall not go out. There should be unceasing worship. Okay, the priest shall burn wood on it every morning. He shall arrange the burnt offering on it. He shall burn on it the fat of the peace offerings. Fire shall be kept burning on the altar continually. It shall not go out. And so what's the main point of this paragraph? The fire can't go out. Right. But there's also all these other things. The fire always had to be burning. It tells you where what the priest had to be wearing. It tells you where he had to bring the ashes. All of these things are an integral part of how worship was supposed to be done. And I think the idea here with this fire that never goes out is that the Lord is worthy of unceasing worship. It doesn't mean unceasing sing, sing, singing or sinning. Like I said, it means living life with a God word heart. Or as we would say in the New Testament, do all things unto the Lord is not to man. So realize that for the priests, when they tended the fire, when they wore the correct clothing, when they shoveled the ashes and brought them outside to some place clean, when they sat down and ate their portion of the grain offering, that was worship for them. Because they're obeying God's requirements and they are therefore living this life of worship as they go about their priestly duties, assuming they're doing it with the right what? The right heart. Because we know later in the Old Testament, the main challenge against Israel was these people, he says in Isaiah, these people, their hearts are far from me. They honor me with their hands. In other words, they're wearing the linen, they're shoveling the ashes, the fire's still on, but their hearts are far from me. So the priests realized had a lot of requirements. And the point is this, God doesn't just say, hey, look, I just want to be worshipped. So like, just come worship me any way you want. As long as I'm being worshipped, I don't care. That's not what God says. I want to underscore something. In the modern church, churchianity as we call it, church in America, in the modern age, the gathering, the gathering of the saints, right? Sunday morning worship service, whatever you want to call it. The gathering has become viewed as giving the consumer what he or she wants. In other words, well, what style of music do they play at that church? Um, well, what kind of preaching is it? Well, what, uh, I mean, like, what kind of stuff do they have? Like, do they give out iPads to visitors? Like, what's the deal, right? And so we have this sense in which we are consuming. But when worship is what's going on, who is the consumer of worship? God is the consumer. And so this is an entire different view of the way that we should be viewing the gathering of God's people, that we gather, we worship the Lord, we worship the Lord as he requires, which we're going to unpack over the next two weeks, and God in his grace serves us because he says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, right? And God serves us in this mutual relationship. And so there's two key concepts that we saw in this paragraph. It's worshiping the right God with the right heart, and it's also worshiping him in the right way. Those two things are crucial to God. Verse 14, and this is the law of the grain offering. The sons of Aaron shall offer it before the Lord in front of the altar, 
and one shall take from it a handful of the fine flour of the grain offering and its oils and all the frankincense that is on the grain offering and burn this as a memorial portion on the altar, a pleasing aroma. This is chapter 2. And the rest of it Aaron and his son shall eat. All of that was explained in chapter 2. But this is the new information. It shall be eaten unleavened in a holy place. And so in other words, remember they said they had to grab a, a fistful of the flour and this was for the priest to eat. And now he's telling them how to eat it. Has to be eaten unleavened. You can't add yeast to it. And it has to be eaten in a holy place. In other words, you can't put it in your pocket and bring it home for the missus. This is to be eaten in a holy place. Well, where? In the court of the tent of meeting, the court of the tabernacle, they shall eat it. It shall not be baked with leaven. I have given it as their portion of my food offerings. It is a thing most holy. Like the sin offering and the guilt offering, every male among the children of Aaron may eat it as decreed forever throughout your generations from the Lord's food offerings. Whatever touches them shall become holy. And so these verses are talking about the grain offering and how the grain offering is a most holy offering. And that doesn't necessarily mean that by saying, well, this offering is most holy, it doesn't mean, well, it's holier, it's more important. Most holy refers to the fact that where the priests were allowed to consume it, it had to be eaten by holy people. In other words, I couldn't eat it. You couldn't eat it because we're not Levite priests. It had to be eaten by holy people and had to be eaten in a holy place. The priestly duties and responsibilities were holy. They had to respect them as such. The holy status of the offering had to be respected. And to disrespect the offering was to disrespect God. Why? Like, who cares? Because we worship the right God in the right way. That's spirit and truth. We worship the right God in the right way. Now we're going to jump to chapter 7, verse 19. You say, I don't see what the big deal is. I'll eat that bread anywhere I want. <laughs> Flesh that touches any unclean thing shall not be eaten. It shall be burned up with fire. All who are clean may eat flesh. But the person who eats of the flesh of the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, while any uncleanness is on him, that person shall be cut off from his people. And if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether human uncleanness or an unclean beast or any unclean detestable creature, and then eats some flesh from the sacrifice of the Lord's peace offerings, that person shall be cut off from his people. So in other words, now they're talking about a different offering, and they're saying if you eat this offering in the wrong way, like you bring your dog out and he goes to the bathroom and you clean it up and you don't wash your hands and then you go back to the tabernacle and eat some bread? Cut off. <laughs> you get cut off. Well, what does it mean to be cut off from the people? Well, commentators say it means one of two things. Everyone agrees it means you've been a bad boy, okay? But to be cut off from your people either means, one, that you got kicked out of the family, in other words, you were exiled from your family. Like, you're dead to me, go live in Canaan, right? That kind of idea. Or you got killed. So you realize this is a holy thing. These are God's holy sacrifices. And for me to take part in this with a flippant heart and just kind of like I'm showing off to my bros and, and, and then all of a sudden I got to get cut off from God's people. It's a severe penalty. See, because it isn't just enough to worship the right God, it's about worshiping him in the right way. And in chapter 8, 
we see the continued this ordination of Aaron and his sons as the first priests. Okay, and if you read this chapter, um, if you didn't read this past week, if you read it this coming week, you see this elaborate description of all of these ordination processes as they're commanded in Exodus 28 and 29. And it talks about, you know, you're going to put the blood here and you're going to put it on his earlobe. And, and it goes through all these different things. And you could say, you could say, well, why the earlobe? And, and you could kind of start tearing it apart like that. But when we do that, and there are answers to that, I'm sure, most of which I'm unaware of, you know, why the earlobe, why the bands, why the breastplate? We can say all those things. Well, why do they have to wear a breastplate? And why do they have those little tablets? And why do they put blood on their ear? But when we miss the point, when we make it about the details, because this is the point, we worship God as he requires, not as we decide. That's the point. The point is, well, how come they had to wear a breastplate? No, that's not the point. The point is, God said to wear a breastplate, you wear a breastplate. God said to put blood on his earlobe, put blood on his earlobe. Don't ask why, just put blood on his earlobe. And so that is the thing that we need to remember. When you think about Leviticus 6, 7, 8, and 9, realize that. It's about worshiping God as God requires with severe penalty, by the way, if you don't, which we're going to see next week. Because in chapter 10, the first priests get killed because they make a boo-boo, okay? And so this is a severely important thing. And so now let's think about this from a new covenant or a new testament or a, you know, we're in the modern age, Jesus Christ has already arrived, he was already crucified, he was already resurrected, he sent his Holy Spirit. And so from this position as being covenant children of God in the new covenant, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, we look back at Leviticus 6, 7, 8, and 9, and we say, okay, God, what does this mean? How does this relate to me? Like, do I need to go get a breastplate? Do I have enough blood on my ears? Well, in John chapter 4, um, a passage that many of you are familiar with, Jesus is talking with a Samaritan woman at a well. And she's in the middle of the day, and she's drawing water out, and she's there because she doesn't really want to be around when a lot of other people are there because she's got a little bit of a shady past. She's had like five or six, or, or really bad luck. She's had five or six husbands who, you know, are, are, she's no longer married to. Either they died or, or they left her or she left them. And Jesus is having this exchange with her. He asks her for some water. And she says, um, and, and she says, they start getting this conversation. And he says to her, look, if you had asked me for water, I could have given you living water. And she says, well, living water sounds great. Then I wouldn't have to go to this well all the time. And then he says, go get your husband. And she says, oh, I don't have a husband. He says, that's right. You've had five husbands. And she says, I perceive you are a prophet. And then she says to him, she says, um, listen, your people say we should worship on this mountain and our people say we should worship on this mountain. And she basically deflects her own sin by wanting to get into a theological debate with the anointed son of God. Bad decision. And so she says, look, the, the Samaritans say we should worship the same God you worship. They say we should worship him here. But you Jews say that we have to worship him in Jerusalem in accordance with Deuteronomy 12.5. And this is what Jesus does. 
he points out to her that the spirit is there. In other words, she wants to worship the right God. But what she's missing is how to worship him. And he says, look, lady, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. You know, what was the big issue with the Pharisees? If you have spirit and truth, which one did they have a lot of? Truth. And which one did they have an absence of? Spirit. And then you had these Samaritans. What This woman wanted to worship God. What did she have? She had spirit. What was she lacking? Truth. Jesus is saying that God wants worshipers who worship God with the right posture of the heart in accordance with how he actually wants to be worshipped. And so to worship God in the spirit, it means a lot of things, okay? For one, it means that it has to come from the heart. It can't just be churchianity, going through the motions. I've always been a Christian because my parents brought me to church as a baby. That doesn't make you a Christian. If you go into a garage, you don't become a car. Like, it just doesn't work that way. And so worshiping God in spirit, it comes from a heart. It is sincere. It is motivated by a love for God and gratitude of all that he is and all that he's done. That's those first three offerings in Leviticus 1, 2, and 3. Worship cannot be spiritless. Spiritless worship is when we go through the motions and it becomes mechanical and formalistic, right? That is not honoring to God. And that's every aspect of worship. You know, when, when we read our Bible daily as a checkbox, it's not honoring to God. When we write a check to give with a disgruntled heart, it's not honoring to God. When we do any of these things, but our spirit is in the wrong place, it is not actually worshiping God. It's worshiping something else. It's worshiping our own abilities to get stuff done, and then we get prop ourselves up in self-righteousness because, well, I can do it. Why can't you? Our worship has to be originating from the right heart if it's going to be directed at God. But worshiping in the Holy Spirit or worshiping in spirit also means by the Holy Spirit. You see, because the Holy Spirit comes within us, he awakens us to an understanding of God's beauty. He awakens us to an understanding of God's splendor. He awakens us to an understanding of God's power. He awakens us to an understanding of our own sin. And then he regenerates, he stirs us so that we can rejoice and that we can respond and that we can give thanks. All of this is a gift of God, not of work, so that no man can boast. The point is, by the time you worship and make a confession of faith, the Holy Spirit has already regenerated that in you. That it's the Holy Spirit who is actually enabling you and empowering you to worship. And because he comes and regenerates your dead soul, planting the imperishable seed of the gospel in your soul, because of that, the sacred space of your heart is cleansed, and then the very presence of God can move into it as it moved into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle in the temple. And that's what happens in your soul. That's what it means to worship God in spirit. What that means is that 
You could be the most dedicated churchgoer, the most dedicated Muslim, the most dedicated Jew, the most heartfelt, sincere person on the planet who's genuinely trying to worship God as you see him. But if the Holy Spirit has not transformed your heart, it is not honoring to God because it is still dirty space instead of sacred space. And so as the Spirit enables us to worship, and to worship God in truth means that our worship must conform to the revelation of God as revealed in the Scriptures. We talk about this in, um, when we do doctrine class, when you read Romans chapter 1, and it talks about something called general revelation. General revelation is what you can learn about God by looking out. You can say, wow, God is a creative God. Like, you know, he provides this beautiful world. He provides rain for the plants to grow. He provides fish. That's all general revelation. Special revelation is the word of God. It has to be specially given, right? Dreams and visions in the Old Testament given to the prophets, that's special revelation. Theophanies, right? Christophanies, appearances of God, the burning bush, you know, the, when, when the word of the Lord appears as a person, a Christophany, a pre-Christ, pre-incarnate Christ, these are special revelation. And what we realize in the book of Romans, chapter 1, is that general revelation cannot save a person. Matter of fact, Paul argues very logically and methodically in, Re- in Romans, chapter 1, that general revelation is only enough to damn a man to hell. That man needs to hear the gospel because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so having a really sincere heart is garbage unless you actually hear the truth of the scriptures, the truth of the gospel, which is why we have to share it. Our worship must be rooted in biblical realities and must be formed by what is true, not by what feels good or what we think. So we worship God both, spirit and truth, spirit and truth, both of these things. It's a both and. You know, some people prefer to worship in the spirit, but they could care less about the truth. In fact, they think that focusing on the truth has the potential to quench the spirit. Others focus on worshiping only in truth, and they're actually offended when people feel like they have some kind of a spiritual experience. But this is the reality. Truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy. And emotion without truth produces shallow people. We worship the right God with the right spirit in accordance with his truth and on his terms. So there's at least one person here, I'm sure, who is wondering, so what do we do with all that Old Testament stuff now? Like, am I worshiping God in the wrong way? Like Bill almost preached with a hat on. I'm pretty sure in 1 Corinthians that's forbidden. You know, and so what do we do, right? There's no bonnets. I don't see any bonnets in here. We're going to focus more on this next week. You know, we don't have time to go through it now. But I want you in preparation for next week, there's some scriptures listed on your lyric sheet. I want you to read Leviticus 10. I want you to read Acts chapter 5. I want you to read some of these key passages about worshiping God in the right way. So we're going to get to that. So don't get sidetracked by that. For today, I want you to understand this reality, this idea. 
We are called to worship the right God in the right way, and Jesus Christ alone made that possible by dying on a cross, by being raised from the dead, and then sending us his Holy Spirit. That is the only way you can worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection purifies our spirit so that we can worship him. His truth shows us that the only way to worship him is by his death, burial, and resurrection. And there's a lot of other things that we can learn, but that's the foundation that we need today. The implication of this is that the only way to actually worship God is as he demands. And God demands to be worshiped through Jesus Christ. What that means, guys, is that Jesus is the only way to actually worship the Father in spirit and truth. What that means is that Jesus is the only way to heaven. What that means is that Jesus is the only name by which someone can be saved. That every other attempt at any other form of any other religion is lifeless because it's either truth without spirit or it's spirit without truth. And we need to be people of spirit and truth. And since worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am and all that I do and all that I ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God, we need to realize that accurate worship is the continuous outpouring of who I am and all that I do and all that I can ever become in light of a God who has chosen me and empowered me to worship him in spirit and truth through the man, the God man, Jesus Christ. And so the culmination of all of these Levitical laws are fulfilled in Jesus, who in Jesus, finally, we can worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, which is good news because we would have not measured up otherwise. 